chapter 11 today, and I want to start by doing what I always do at the beginning of a sermon. Let's talk about sports. Um, <laughs> the, the 49ers got a coach. His name's Kyle Shanahan. You guys know Kyle Shanahan, the baby face genius. Anyway, um, he was, he's the Niners head coach now. So actually, I got to hurry up because they're on at one. Um, yeah, let's get going here, right? Uh, amen. All right, let's pray. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Kyle Shanahan's our coach now, but a couple years ago, he was the offensive coordinator, which is like one below the head coach for the Atlanta Falcons. And in 2017, he was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons when the Atlanta Falcons were in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Does anybody remember this game? It's a famous game. So I was watching it, and with we had a Super Bowl party, a bunch of people over at the house. And I remember saying, should we turn something else on? This game is over. Because at halftime, the Falcons were up 28 to 3 on Tom Brady's Patriots. And our coach, our now head coach, was the offensive coordinator. And what he did was he kept passing the ball, which meant every time they dropped it, the clock stopped. And he kept stopping the clock and stopping the clock, and it gave Tom Brady enough time on the clock to come back and win the Super Bowl. And Kyle Shanahan and everybody was devastated. Everybody on the Falcons, they were devastated. Well, anyway. This is a part nobody knows. I think it was a day or two after the game, maybe a week or two, I don't know. Kyle Shanahan called Bill Belichick on the phone, who's the Patriots head coach, like probably the greatest football coach of all time, right? This guy's got a billion Super Bowls, and I mean, he's a, he's a genius. And Kyle called him and said, what did I do wrong? How'd you guys beat me? You know, he wanted to know. He's like, I'm going to be a head coach someday. I want to learn from the best. So with some humility... He called Bill Belichick so that the next time around, he could have a better game plan. The next time he's in that same situation with a big lead, he can do something better. And he asked him. Um, the same, having a game plan is very important, and learning from past mistakes is very important. The same is true with war, right? Like, have you heard the, um, you know, if you know anything about World War II? Hitler did not learn from Napoleon. Does anybody know what he didn't learn from Napoleon? Don't invade Russia in the winter. Now... Yeah, yeah. There, um, probably a good thing he didn't learn from Napoleon. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, I don't know what's that Norm Macdonald joke. Boy, the more I hear about this Hitler guy, the more I don't like him. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So it's a good thing he didn't learn from Napoleon, but it's the same thing, right? He didn't learn. He didn't learn from Napoleon. Um, our as followers of Jesus, we are engaged in a war, right? The Bible uses war imagery a lot. Um, but the war is different, right? There's the two sides in this war. There's the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom of God. And there's Babylon or the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the enemy, the world's kind of evil oppressive system. And the thing is, too many of the people of the kingdom of God, too many followers of Jesus are going into this with no game plan. And they're not looking at church history and the New Testament stuff and thinking, how am I going to go about fighting this war? How am I going to go about fighting sin in my own life? How am I going to do this? They go in uh, with no game plan. So today what we're going to do is we're going to learn from Napoleon, right? We're going to learn from Kyle Shanahan, you know, his mistakes in the Super Bowl. That's what we're going to do. And so this passage today really kind of gives us a very important, not the entire game plan, but a very important piece on how as followers of Jesus do we battle this evil system of Babylon um, in our own lives and just kind of in the world in general. So we're going to start, we're going to be in um, 
In, uh, oh, it's right here. Let me move this a little. Uh, we're going to start in verse 14. So last week we read the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and now here we are. We're going to uh, read this section about from the Lumo Project video too about casting out demons and whatnot. Um, now, he was casting out a demon uh, that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. So again, we've talked a handful of times in the book of Luke, so I'm not going to super get into this because uh, it's pretty much just church people here today, right? And so I know most of you guys have heard uh, me talk about demons and demon uh like what demons do. But basically, here's the quick gist of it. Demons are, um, you know, the fallen angels, right? They're the bad guys. Um, spiritual, they're like the opposite of what an angel is. An angel is a, a spiritual being that works for the Lord. Um, demons are fallen spiritual beings. Um, and again, we've talked about this, but I'll say this just one more time. I don't super love the, the language um, that we use in the evangelical world about uh, demonic possession, right? Um, it's funny, I was reading a, it was like a comic or strip or something on Babylon B or something about um, how much we teach our children about demonic possession versus like the gospel. <laughs> I thought that was really funny because I grew up in a church that was very much like that, you know, reading Frank Peretti books and that sort of stuff. But anyway, the, the language of possession um, implies it's kind of black or white. Either you're possessed or you're not possessed, you know, and I think the more biblical way to talk about it is to talk about like demon oppression. And that happens in like levels, right? Some people are way more oppressed by demonic forces and given to demonic forces than other people. And especially than followers of Jesus who have the spirit within them, you know, it says that is stronger than the spirits that are in the world, you know. And so there are some people that, you know, what we would, uh, some church people would say, oh, they're possessed. What I would say is, yeah, okay, they're just like, super given into these demonic spirits and they're really oppressed but that doesn't mean you can't be halfway oppressed you know it's not just black and white it's not yes or no there's levels of how hard these demons are pressing in um, during the ministry of jesus it's important to say too that these demons were really blitz in the qb you know what that is more sports talk um where in a football where everybody on the defense runs at the quarterback at the same time and they leave some receivers open and that sort of stuff. They're just, they're just really going for one guy. And that's what we see in the ministry of Jesus is this hyper-focused activity of the enemy trying to destroy the work of Jesus. He was throwing everything that he could at Jesus, hoping to derail him. And so um, I think it's important to say that the, the not, uh, it's not that demons don't act like this still. It's, I think what we're seeing is the pinnacle of their attempt to stop the work of the Lord during the life and ministry of Jesus. It was like hyper-focused here, right? And so we don't say uh, every church is, we should have a demonic, um, you know, deliverance ministry or something like, you know. Uh, but this is a very real thing that still happens. And it happens in our own lives, even if we're not to that point of looking like one of these guys. So this demon um, possesses, I just said it, oppresses this guy. Uh, to the point, you know, and indwells him to the point where it makes the guy mute, right? And so the Greek is a little funny, and the ESV sticks to that. Well, he was casting out a demon that was mute. Okay, the demon, what it means is it made the guy mute. And so when the Jesus comes up and he tells this demon, leave this dude alone, whatever he says, um, <coughs> the guy, the demon leaves, and all of a sudden the guy starts speaking. Now, does that remind you of another story that we read in the book of Luke? Yeah, the story, you're right. I'll just, for the podcast, I'll pretend like everybody said it. Yeah, you're right. 
Uh, it's the, uh, <laughs> the story of Zechariah. Do you remember that? At the beginning of Luke, the very beginning, uh, John the Baptist's dad, the angel comes and says, hey, dude, you're going to have a kid. And he's like, no way. <laughs> you know. And the, demon, or the, demon, the angel says, all right, you're going to be mute as a sign to prove it. Right? So this is a lot like that. You're supposed to think of that. This is that, but evil. Right? This is the bizarro version of that. Right? Isn't that what's the evil Superman, maybe? I don't know. I only know that from Seinfeld. Bizarro, Jerry. Okay, yeah, the mirror unit. Yeah, yeah, there you go. This is the flip of that, right? And so I love the way that this is described in this verse, too. This healing is so matter-of-fact um, that Jesus just has power over the enemy. You know, he heals the guy, and all of a sudden this guy starts speaking. Now, I wonder what the guy said. Was You know, this is one of those biblical details we don't get that I'm really curious about. What was the first thing he said after he could finally talk again and the demon leaves him? Was it, you know... Boy, you have some lettuce in your teeth, and I've been waiting to tell you that for... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know what it was. It was probably... I don't know. Um, and as this happened, the people around him marveled, right? The people are excited to see Jesus. When you see the kingdom of light pushing back the kingdom of darkness, it's a pretty cool thing. And these people get front row seats. And we're going to actually see this important point, though, in the next few weeks. We're going to talk about this important point. Marveling at something is not faith. Because in the next, next week, we're going to see these people's reaction to the ministry of Jesus, and it's not quite what you would expect. But anyway, the people marvel, verse 15, but some of them said, well, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. So here's the thing. Nobody doubted um, that Jesus could do miracles. And this is really interesting. Let's just take a look at the book of Luke. So check out this slide here. I'll point with my laser pointer. Oh, it doesn't show up on the screen. <laughs> I just, I'm just kidding. I don't really want to do that anyway. I should take this home for the cat, you know. Um, drive the cat bananas. Look at the, the miracles in the book of Luke so far. Anyway, um, Jesus starts out by healing a demon-oppressed man in a synagogue. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, heals a man with leprosy, heals that dude that they dropped through the roof, if you remember that story. Um, he heals a man with the shriveled hand, healed a Roman centurion servant. He's raised somebody from the dead, the widow's son at Nain. Uh, he calms the storm. The, the, he heals the guy who's oppressed by a legion of demons, uh, if you remember that story on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He raises Jairus' daughter again from the dead. That's two people he's raised from the dead up to this point. Um, he heals the bleeding woman, feeds 5,000, um, and then there's the story of the demon-oppressed boy after the transfiguration. That's a pretty impressive list. That's just the book of Luke, right? The other three gospels have other miracles. This doesn't count the wedding at Cana where he turns water into wine that had already happened at this point. And so the point is there's a lot of miracles. And if you look at this list of miracles, basically all of them had a lot of people around when he did it. There's nothing in this list that's, you know, he went in private and nobody saw him perform this miracle. Every one of the miracles that, and he probably did stuff like that, that's just not in the Gospels, I don't know, I'm just guessing. But all of these miracles here were done in plain view of everybody. And so when Jesus comes along uh, and heals this guy who's been oppressed by this demon, nobody says, well, he didn't really do it. That's not what they say. Uh, here's the problem for these leaders, though. They, they didn't want to follow Jesus. They wanted to hold on to their own power, but... They couldn't deny all of these miracles that were happening around them. 
So how do they explain these miracles? Well, he's doing it in the power of Beelzebul. Right? Great baby name, anybody look? No, I'm just kidding. Um, in, now, what does this mean, Beelzebul? Well, there's a couple of options. In 2 Kings, there's a um, Canaanite god named Baal-zebub. Um, and so a lot of people think it's a reference to that god. Um, the, the word actually could also mean the, um, the house of Baal. Uh, Zebul in Hebrew means like residence or house, so Baal's house. Um, either way, the idea is this word kind of came to mean the devil. Right? It was a way for them to talk about like, oh, that ancient Canaanite god is like the devil. Uh, it became this picture of the devil. And so um, what they're saying is he's doing miracles. Yeah, okay, he's doing them. We can't deny that he's raising people from the dead and doing all this stuff. But he's doing them in the power of the devil, not in the power of the Lord. It's just like the magicians with uh, Moses and Pharaoh. Do you remember this story? So Moses shows up and he's like, hey, watch all this baller stuff that I can do. And the magicians copy a bunch of the stuff, right? So he turns water into blood in the Nile. And they're like, ah, we could do that. And they do it. They do it. It says in Exodus, through the power of the occult, right? Through the power of the devil, these guys do some of these same miracles. They do the frogs. Um, my favorite one is the snake. Moses throws his staff down or Aaron's staff or whatever it was. I don't know. And uh, it turns into a snake. And they're like, we can do that. And they throw a staff down and it becomes a snake. And then Moses' snake, like a real baller, eats their snake. <laughs> Yeah, how you like them apples? Picks up his snake and, ooh. Um, You know, it's really interesting. As you read the story, though, I went back and read it. Then they get to the gnats, right? The, the plague of the gnats. And then they can't do that one. That just seems really random to me, and I can't wait to ask God about that someday. Like, okay, why could they do all these other ones? They get to gnats, and they're like, oh, that's too big for us. I'm like, you just turned water into blood. Like, and you did the snake thing. Um, anyway, this is what they're accusing Jesus of. is like being uh, these magicians um, doing these miracles like out of this occult practices. And then, so that's what some of the people say. Then other people go, well, I, I want to see more. Really? You want to see more? Now, Matthew, actually in his gospel, he gets more specific. He tells us that these were scribes and Pharisees, um, and we're going to get more into this next week. But their point here was to continue to test him. And here's the thing. The Old Testament basically tells us you should test people who claim to speak for God. You should do that. Um, and to decide if they're prophets or false prophets. So aren't they doing the right thing? And the answer is no, they're not, because here's the thing. Jesus has already proved who he is. They just don't like the answer, and so what they're going to do is they're going to raise the bar. Okay, imagine if Bruce Springsteen comes to me. He says, hey, John, I really like the porch. Are you looking for a worship leader? And I go, Bruce Springsteen, you want to lead worship at the porch? I just picked a guy. Do you guys like Bruce Springsteen? I like Bruse Springsteen. Okay. Anyway, I want to lead. Uh, that's his voice. Uh, I want to lead worship at the porch. And I say, Bruce, are you any good? And Bruce Springsteen goes, well, I have Oscars. He won an Oscar. I Googled it for some song from a movie, I'm assuming. Uh, I have Golden Globes. I've got like 20 Grammys. I have a Presidential Medal of Freedom for music. I have sold hundreds of millions of records. And then I go, what else you got? Right? What if I told Bruce Springsteen, you can't lead worship at the porch. I don't think it, you're going to be good enough. But the real reason is because I like leading worship every other week. So what if I told Bruce Springsteen, he can't lead worship here. And for all of you guys, because I want to do it. That's what these guys are doing. They're telling Jesus, 
wow, 20 Grammys and a Presidential Medal of Freedom and an Oscar and hundreds of millions of records. What else you got? Because I still want to keep doing my thing. I don't want to give up this thing that I kind of like doing, even though you're Bruce Springsteen, right? So the whole point of the sermon is that Jesus is a lot like Bruce Springsteen. No, I'm just kidding. All right, let's keep going. Um, Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom that's divided against itself is laid waste. And every divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So Jesus, they didn't actually say this to Jesus, right? There's a big crowd here. They're saying this guy sucks, right? He's casting out demons through the power of the devil. And Jesus knows what they're up to on the other side of the room. And so he gets into it. Now, what he does here is there's this section, this and the next couple of verses, there's three statements that start with if. Right, so that's how we're going to outline this, right? So the first one is uh, every kingdom, blah, blah, blah. And uh, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus, the first thing he does is he just points out their stupid logic. He basically goes, what you just said makes absolutely no sense, guys. Why would Satan fight against himself? All of these miracles that I'm doing are pushing the kingdom of Satan backwards. Why would he do that to himself? Right? Why would he cast out his own demons? It's like the U.S. going to war and then droning their own military bases. Right? Like That wouldn't make any sense. And so he's the, his first point is, your basic premise is stupid. It doesn't make any sense, but he keeps going. Verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. He's like, okay, even if that's what I'm doing, you guys have a bunch of people that you claim are... Uh, exorcists, people who can cast out demons. We don't know who these people are or if they could actually do it. It doesn't really matter to Jesus' argument. He's not saying that they actually could, but I don't know. Maybe they did, I don't know. Um, But what he's saying is, well, if that's how I'm doing it, then that must be how your guys are doing it too. Right? If that's the power to cast out demons, uh, it's either the work of God or it's the work of the devil. It can't be both, right? And then the last one, Uh, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is uh, super cool. He he uses this phrase, the finger of God. What he's doing here is he's referencing that same Exodus story uh, with Moses and Charlton Heston and the let my people go and the whole thing, right? Um, At one point, these magicians got to a point where they couldn't replicate the, the miracles of Moses and the plagues and all this stuff. And they go to Pharaoh and they say, hey, Pharaoh, what you're seeing here is the finger of God. And so Jesus says, you're calling me these these magicians. But he kind of flips the story. He says, what you're actually seeing here is not the magicians. You're seeing the finger of God. He's connecting his ministry to Moses, which is very important because at one point Moses talked about Jesus. He specifically said, hey, guys, you think that I'm cool? Just wait. There's a prophet who's coming who is going to be amazing. He's going to be nothing. He's going to be so much better than me. And for the whole time of the people of Israel, they were looking forward to this prophet. And Jesus is saying, the finger of God has come upon you. I'm that guy that Moses was looking forward to. And uh, if that's true, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now remember, we've got the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And the whole point of the ministry of Jesus was to, to inaugurate the kingdom of God and to start pushing back the kingdom of the enemy. And this is like what I said, what everybody was waiting for, the the beginning of the kingdom of God. Now, to teach more about this, Jesus 
uh, he teaches them with two kind of short little parables is how he ends the section. So the first one is this. It's kind of a weird little passage. He says, when a strong man... <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Let me take a drink of water. <clears throat> that would be fun for the podcast. All right. Um, now, let's try this again. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Okay, so let me tell you what's going on in this parable. There's this strong man. Um, do you guys remember that strong man? No? Anybody else from? <laughs> no? No? Nobody remembers? Okay. Uh, what was that called? Remember the little cartoons from like the mid-2000s? Ah, strong bad. That's what it is. Yeah, strong bad. Every time I see the word, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so there's a strong man, right? Um, Satan in the parable is the strong man. So, uh, which is true. Satan is powerful. Look at the world around and ask, is there sin happening? Is Satan getting his way in our world? Does he seem to, does it look like things are going his way a little bit? Yeah, because he's strong and he's very good at what he does. And he has a lot of influence. But not just the world. Look at your own life. Is Satan a strong man in your own life? Think about it. How often does your behavior not follow your faith? Right? Uh, anybody that says, that never happens to me, you just lied and your behavior didn't follow your faith, right? Because it happens to all of us. But here's the connection, right? Our, the enemy oppresses people, remember, at different levels. This is what we're talking about. You don't have to be fully oppressed and completely taken over by a demon to say that Satan is a strong man in my life and getting his way. Sometimes it's not full control, but it, he still does very serious stuff. Um, if you want to learn more about this, one of my favorite books in the entire world is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Have you read the, anybody read The Screwtape Letters? So what The Screwtape Letters is, it's a made-up little story that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote pretending to have intercepted letters from one demon who's kind of learning how to be a demon writing to, I think it's his uncle or something, who's like a more experienced demon teaching him how to mess with people. And the whole point of the book is, here's all these letters I found about how these demons work, but it's to show you how the enemy tries to get into your life and make you resent people when something goes good for them, or like all this different stuff. It's a, you know, I mean, it's not the Bible, but it's a, it's a fascinating little kind of look at C.S. Lewis's take on the way that the enemy works in our life and is a strong man. And it's true, right? Even as followers of Jesus, the enemy has influence in our lives, and it sucks. But here's the good news. Jesus is the stronger man. That's the parable. You've got the strong man, and then you've got the even stronger man who comes in and beats that guy up. Um, I saw a video the other day on Reddit. It's not a John sermon if we're not mentioning something that I saw on Reddit. Um, this guy went into a restaurant, and he starts to fight with the hostess about the vaccine mandate. You know, she asked to see his vaccine card, and this guy goes absolutely bananas. And not like, oh, this is unjust or government, you know, it was nothing like that. Like he started screaming racist stuff at this lady. And so some guys stood up to try to step in. And one of them was kind of this older guy. And so what this dude who's angry about the vaccine mandate does is he punches the hostess, the lady asked for the card, and then he takes a swing at this old guy who had stepped in, like a, like a senior citizen kind of guy. He pushes him to the ground or something. And he's looking real tough. And then out of nowhere, out of the left of the frame, this younger guy comes flying in and just absolutely drops this guy to the ground. Right? Now, the point is, this is a lot like Jesus' story. Satan thinks he's pretty tough. 
while he's hitting hostesses and old men. But all of a sudden, the MMA dude comes in, and this guy is nothing, right? He gets, I was, I mean, it was kind of a disturbing video, but I mean, he, this dude got dropped to the ground. And that's exactly what happens with the devil, is in the story, kind of, you know, you're the, you're the hostess, right? You're the old dude. And Jesus has been back there doing jujitsu and taekwondo, right? <laughs> and he's the one who's going to come in and he's going to drop kick the devil for you. And that's the story. That's what Jesus is saying. Is yeah, Satan thinks he's hot stuff, right? But with this demon oppression and this this influence in your life, he thinks he's the strong man, but I'm the guy who's been doing jujitsu. I'm the stronger man and he's the one who's afraid of me. And that's why we see that in the ministry of Jesus is the devil is losing, right? All right, let's keep going. Verse 23. Um, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So again, there's only two sides. That's what Jesus is saying. Either you're with me or you're not. Either you're part of the kingdom of God or you're participating in the kingdom of Babylon. And Jesus is looking at these leaders and uh, these, these Pharisees and these scribes, and he's giving them a harsh warning. You guys are on the wrong side. You're on the strong man's side. You're not on the stronger man's side. Right. And uh, it's very serious. And actually next week he's going to get into some more sort of serious stuff. But he, he ends this passage with one more quick parable here. He says, look, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, <coughs> it passes through waterless places seeking rest, finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and it brings seven more spirits, more evil than itself, and they all enter and dwell there. And the, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So this is a really weird little story. Right? When you first read it, this is a very odd thing to say. The story basically goes like this. There's a demon oppressing some guy. The, the demon decides to go for a walk. Right? He leaves the guy. And the guy thinks, hey, the demon's gone. All this power is out of my life. I'm going to start cleaning up on my own. So he puts his life in order, right? Um, <coughs> sorry. The demon takes off to waterless places, which was just imagery. The desert was a place that was used a lot with imagery of the devil, right? That's why you see Jesus in the desert being tempted by the devil, and uh, the monks would go out to the desert and fight the devil, kind of like this desert imagery is used a lot to talk about demons and the devil. So when the guy, when the demon's gone, the guy starts sweeping, putting his house in order, fixes his life up through his own willpower. Um, he quits some of the sin and some of the stuff that this demon was causing him to do. Sorry, I'm going to throw a cough drop in my mouth. Um, <coughs> well, then the demon is out there, and he gets bored. And he goes, man, you know what was a lot more fun was oppressing that guy. So he brings seven of his friends, and he goes back. And the guy was, like, cleaning his house, you know, getting his life in order. And all of a sudden now, he's got eight demons coming, messing the whole thing up again. Right, trashes the place because he wasn't strong enough to keep them out in the first place. And so now at the end of the story, this guy is worse off than he was at the beginning. Even though for a period in the middle, he got his life together, didn't he? Right, He starts cleaning the house. He starts putting things together. The meaning of this parable is by... <clears throat> finding the meaning of this parable comes by asking this question. What's missing from the story? The stronger man. Right, There's no stronger man here. Um, it's the same parable, but without Jesus. Or think of this parable, but with Jesus, right? The demon leaves, goes out to the desert, to the waterless places. The guy starts to get his life in order. 
you know, Jesus moves in. The demon comes back, knocks on the door, and Jiu-Jitsu Jesus answers the door and says, can I help you, demon? And the demon looks at him, knows he's going to get beat up, and says, no thanks, and then he leaves. That's a completely different parable than what we see here. And then Jesus goes back inside, and the guy continues to get his life together. Things continue to get better for him. Right? And this is what Jesus is claiming. This is our connection. Not only am I pushing back the kingdom of Satan, not only am I moving the kingdom of the enemy backwards, but I'm replacing it with something better. Right? We're not just saying, don't sin. We're saying, don't give in to the enemy, don't sin. But at the same time, you replace that with the kingdom of God. That's the point of this passage. Because here's the thing. This is, let's wrap this up then. Um, you're going to struggle against Satan. You're going to struggle against sin in this life. Um, Peter and I were uh, doing a Bible study kind of thing together. We were chatting, and there was a video we were watching. And in the video, the guy, this guy Jeff Vanderstelt, he, he talked about sin in our lives happens in kind of three stages as we're being freed from sin. In the past, uh, when we were saved before, hopefully that was before for all of us here, saved in the past, we were free from the penalty of sin. In the present, as we're struggling with sin and the Spirit is indwelling us, we're free from the power of sin in our lives now. And then in eternity, when we're what the what, uh, theologians call glorification, when we're glorified, we're going to be free from the actual presence of sin. Right. So in the past, the penalty that we were going to have to face for sin was completely thrown away. In the present, now where we are, Sin has no power over us the way that it did before, but it's still there. And then in the future, we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. Eventually, we're going to get to a point in the new heavens and new earth where there's just no sin around. There is no oppression. There is no strong man at all, only the stronger man. But what do you see in that triad there, um, which is kind of an old Puritan triad, I think. Um, the Puritans would talk about that. But here's the important part is, um, in the presence, we aren't freed from in the present, sorry, we're not freed from the presence of sin. We still live in a world of sin, and we still live in a world as sinners. But in Romans, he says this, Thanks be to God that you, <clears throat> who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have committed, and having uh, been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. You used to be a slave to sin. Sin used to control you. But now sin while it still has influence, has no ultimate power over you, right? So it doesn't mean sin completely disappears. We still, from time to time, because we're stupid, we return to our old master. And we say, oh, sin, you're so great. This is what will make me happy, even though it's not. And then we come to our senses. And the point is that the constant call of the New Testament is to keep up the fight. Keep resisting and fighting sin. In 1 Peter, right? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. And there's an important part, right? So the sin versus the kingdom of God, which is waging war against your soul. And so we get a pretty good picture of this battle um, in our passage today. But here's the important part. Here's the important part of our, our passage. You can never beat sin in your own strength. Fighting sin in your own strength is never going to end in victory of the war. Maybe some short-term victories of some battles. You might win some battles on your own, but you're not going to win the war on your own. This is the way people do this. 
I'm going to defeat sin, but I'm just going to quit doing whatever it is that I'm doing cold turkey. I'm going to join a 12-step program, which can be helpful. Um, I'm addicted to porn, so I'm going to put this software on my computer that sends my pastor whatever websites I visit. And then that's all stuff in our own power. I'm going to go down to the Barnes and Nobles. Is that still a thing, right? Um, Is a bookstore still a thing? And I'm going to go to the Russian Hill bookstore, and I'm going to find books that are about self-help and how to fix this problem in my life. And again, not all of those things are bad things, but they're not ultimate things. None of those are dealing with the heart and the soul. And let me tell you why that won't ever work. Um, There's this great book called, speaking of self-help books, called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Duhigg? Duhigg? Something? Anyway, so it's a pretty interesting book. I read it a few years ago. And basically, the whole point of the book, big fat book about how habits work in your brain, it was fascinating, the science of how basically your brain, the part of your brain that does habits is different from the rest of your brain. So like there was a guy who had like a 10-second memory kind of a thing, and his brain was mush. But they figured out they could train him with habits. And one day, he, he had to have full-time care and everything. And one day, he got out of the house. And they couldn't find him anywhere. And then he showed up back at home. And they were like, how did he do that? And they realized, because every day he went on the same walk. And at some point, the habit part of his brain, while the rest of his brain didn't work, the habit part of his brain took him home. But he doesn't remember who he is. He doesn't remember where he lives. He, did, he had a very... Anyway, so this book, Habit, was talking about this. And one of the things this guy, uh, Duhigg, said was, um, imagine that breaking a habit is tough um, if you don't replace it with something else. So imagine every day you're sitting at your desk, two o'clock hits, and you go get a cookie. little sugar rush for the rest of the afternoon. Uh, nobody does that, right? Brianna eats my candy. Um, now, <laughs> let's say that you want to stop eating these cookies, right? Putting on a little extra COVID around the sides here, you know, like some of us, and uh, you want to stop eating these cookies. So what Duhigg says is that you're going to find yourself grabbing that cookie without even thinking about it. And you're going to sit at your desk and you're going to take a bite and you're going to go, oh yeah, wait, I'm not supposed to be eating cookies. You're not even going to realize that you're eating this cookie because the habit part of your brain just took over. And now let's say you managed to quit cookies cold turkey. That same part of your brain is going to kick in And all of a sudden, you're going to be sitting at your desk eating a brownie, and you're going to go, wait, how did I get a brownie? (laughs) Right, because your brain was craving that sugar rush. So he says, look, you've quit cookies, but you're not any better off because now you're eating a brownie every day, which is maybe worse for you. And so what he says is you need to rewire your brain to replace the habit. So what he suggests is every day, instead of going to get a cookie, go for a walk outside. And I think he says it's like it takes a month to rewire your brain then you'll be sitting at your desk at 2 o'clock every day and your brain will crave a walk, right? And so he says you have to be intentional. That's only sort of the point here. The point is this. uh, That's kind of the habit part of your brain. But what he's saying is you can't just stop doing something without replacing it with something else. And that's kind of the whole point of his book. But a similar idea happens not with the habit part of our brain and our bodies, like the physical, chemical part of our brains, but the same thing happens in our souls with our spirituality. You can't just quit sin cold turkey and then push the enemy away. Because otherwise, he's going to show up with seven of his friends. He's going to show up with something worse. He's going to show up with a brownie instead of a cookie. He's just going to find you a different idol. right? I'm going to quit watching porn cold turkey, and then I'm just going to replace it with something else. Or I'm going to quit 
I don't know what's another set. Gluttony. I'm going to eat like crazy person. I don't take care of my body. I'm just going to replace it with something else or pride or jealousy or anger or whatever it is. You might be able to stop that sin, but you're not going to be able to stop sin. You're not going to be able to stop idolatry unless <clears throat> you bring in a stronger man, right? Unless you replace it with the kingdom of God. That's the only way to push the kingdom of Satan away in your own life. You need someone better. And the biblical answer to this is you need the Holy Spirit to move in, right? Jesus died, he rose again, also that <clears throat> we could be united to God. And the way we do that, the glue that brings us to God, right, that connects us to God is the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question then is just practically, how do we do that? Right, that all sounds fine and dandy, but like, what do I go home and do? How do I invite the Holy Spirit into my life? And again, I say this a lot. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, there's no trick. Right, there's no secret. This is how you do it. You do the regular stuff that we do in the Christian life. And the more that you do this stuff, the more that you're replacing the kingdom of the enemy with the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so what do you do? You fill your life with Scripture. Like, fill your life with Scripture. Not just, you know, like, uh, not as like a side project. Not something you kind of like but you fill your life with scripture. You know, I saw a video the other day that absolutely blew my mind. Um, I thought about showing it today, but I knew the sermon was going to go long anyway, and you guys don't need 10 more minutes. So we're not, I'll just describe the video to you. Do you guys remember Matt from the 10-minute Bible hour from the summer? Right, this dude's hilarious. I love this guy. <clears throat> and uh, we actually, I think I told you guys that, right? We sent him a little bit of money because we use so many of his videos. He has like a little donate. And I sent him a little thing, and he wrote back. He's real nice about it. But anyway, so Matt, he has a 10-year-old son, who every night when he goes to bed listens to the book of Matthew for a month or two. And so what he did was he had a friend over who's a theologian. And he went to the kitchen and he quizzed his son on the book of Matthew and he quizzed the theologian. And the kid beat the theologian. And so he goes, okay, I'm going to be honest. The kid beat me too, right, while I was watching this video. And I, like, read the Bible a lot. You know what I mean? Like, I do this all week. While you guys are all at work, I'm sitting there reading my Bible, right? This is what I do so I can be a good teacher to you guys. But this kid, like, was finishing sentences randomly out of the middle of the book of Matthew because he had filled his life with Scripture, right, versus kind of Scripture as a side project. So that's the first thing. Fill your life with Scripture. Be like Matt from the 10-Minute Bible Hours kid, 10-year-old kid who could just basically pick up anything from the book of Matthew and tell you what was going on. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is fill your life with um, worship and prayer, right? This is why um, being committed, it's good to see you all here today, it's good to be committed to Sunday mornings, right? Because there's not really another time when you're gathering with the people of God and you're singing songs, you're singing to the Lord. That's an important discipline that puts the stronger man into your life. Um, fill your life with fellowship. Wednesday nights are important. Just spending time with church people going to dinner, having pizza at Stephen's house. Um, fill your life with the mission. It's part of, one of the things I say a lot is that um, Christians go like this. I'm going to wait until I'm like a super great Christian and then I'm going to go on the mission of God and love my neighbors. But one of the best ways to get closer to God is by loving your neighbors. You're going to go out there, you're going to love your neighbors, you're going to see something really cool happen and you're going to go, hey, God is cool. And then that's going to bring you closer to God. So go out on the mission is one of the ways that you invite Jesus into your life. And then the last way is, and this is my, I'm real, I'm real proud of this, guys. This is how we're going to end the sermon. The last way is taking communion. And that's our transition into communion. See that? 
You like that? So we're going to talk about the last way in just a sec. Um, I'm going to invite Peter up. We're going to sing, uh, speaking of worship, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to take um, the sacrament of communion, um, communion together.